0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to episode 293 of Forgotten Classics. I'm Julie, and we are going to continue with Robert Louis Stevenson's mystery, The Pavilion on the Links. First, though, I have a podcast highlight. I really can't believe I haven't mentioned this one because I've been listening to it for some time. It's called You Must Remember This. Karina Longworth gives us the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. And what that means is she's going into the personalities that make or made the movies. The first season was a really interesting hodgepodge, I think you could call it, of all kinds of stories from Frank Sinatra in the movies to Bogie before Bacall, Bacall after Bogie, to Bruce Lee and his son. All sorts of different interesting connections or different ways to look at stars that we haven't really thought of them before. And naturally what happens when you're looking at one particular angle of a star, you wind up hearing their whole history. What I like too is that she'll say, well, what you'll hear is this myth essentially. And then she'll dive into why the myth does or doesn't pan out in terms of the information that you can find on it now. The second season was called Star Wars, and it was about what were different Hollywood stars doing during World War II. She started off with the Hollywood Canteen with Betty Davis, who helped start the Hollywood Canteen, and then actually was in a movie about the Hollywood Canteen. And people like Carol Lombard, who helped raise war funds and then died in a tragic plane crash, which leads to her talking about Clark Gable, who was her bereft husband. I mean, it was just really interesting. Then the third season, I actually didn't listen to because it was all about Charles Manson. Because, you know, he was connected to a lot of people in Hollywood, deliberately so. And I didn't want to hear about Charles Manson, but I know a lot of people found it really fascinating. The fourth season is up now. It's called MGM Stories. So many people were asking her for stories that connected with MGM Studios that she just went ahead and said she was going to start telling the story of the studio beginning with Louis Mayer and continuing on through a lot of the people who made it, you know, a major studio. What I have found and what I've had other people tell me who listen to it is that even if you think you know the story, there are always some new and interesting details in there. And Karina Longworth is a really good storyteller. I really (laughs) love listening to her tell these stories. So give it a listen. Now we are back to the pavilion on the links. When last we stopped listening, we were going to launch off into the story of my future wife. Okay, I have to stop for a moment and say, this device drove me nuts don't call her my future wife all the time. Let us have a little suspense of who she's going to pick. (sighs) Yes, yes, I am going to criticize the great classic writer who I love. That's how much chutzpah I've got, which you know by now is a lot. (laughs) Anyway, that said, I like the rest of the story or I wouldn't have read it. So, my future wife getting ready to tell her story. Let's not wait any more. Let's dive in. Pavilion on the Links by Robert Louis Stevenson 4. This was my wife's story as I drew it from her among tears and sobs. Her name was Clara Huddlestone. It sounded very beautiful in my ears but not so beautiful as that other name of Clara Cassilis, which she wore during the longer, and I thank God, the happier portion of her life. Her father, Bernard Huddlestone, had been a private banker in a very large way of business. Many years before, his affairs becoming disordered, he had been led to try dangerous and, at last, criminal expedients to try to retrieve himself from ruin. All was in vain. He became more and more cruelly involved, and found his honor lost at the same moment with his fortune. About this time, Northmore had been courting his daughter with great assiduity, though with small encouragement, and to him, knowing him thus disposed in his favor, Bernard Huddlestone turned for help in his extremity. It was not merely ruin and dishonor, nor merely a legal condemnation that the unhappy man had brought upon his head. It seems he could have gone to prison with a light heart. What he feared, what kept him awake at night, or recalled him from slumber unto frenzy, was some secret, sudden, and unlawful attempt upon his life. Hence he desired to bury his existence, and escape to one of the islands in the South Pacific, and it was in Northmore's yacht, the Red Earl, that he designed to go. The yacht picked them up clandestinely upon the coast of Wales, and had once more deposited them at Graydon, till she could be refitted and provisioned for the longer voyage. Nor could Clara doubt that her hand had been stipulated as the price of the passage, for although Northmore was neither unkind nor even discourteous, he had shown himself in several instances somewhat overbold in speech and manner. I listened i need not say with fixed attention and put many questions as to the more mysterious part it was in vain she had no clear idea of what the blow was nor of how it was expected to fall her father's alarm was unfeigned and physically prostrating and he had thought more than once of making an unconditional surrender to the police but the scheme was finally abandoned for he was convinced that not even the strength of our British prisons could shelter him from his pursuers. He had had many affairs in Italy, and with Italians resident in London, in the latter years of his business, and these last, as Clara fancied, were somehow connected with the doom that threatened him. He had shown great terror at the presence of an Italian seaman on board the Red Earl, and had bitterly and repeatedly accused Northmore in consequence, The latter had protested that Beppo—that was the seaman's name—was a capital fellow, and could be trusted to the death. But Mr. Huddlestone had continued ever since to declare that all was lost, that it was only a question of days, and that Beppo would be the ruin of him yet. I regarded the whole story as the hallucination of a mind shaken by calamity. He had suffered heavy loss by his Italian transactions, and hence the sight of an italian was hateful to him and the principal part in his nightmare would naturally enough be played by one of that nation what your father wants i said is a good doctor and some calming medicine but mr northmore objected clara he is untroubled by losses and yet he shares in the terror i could not help laughing at what i considered her simplicity my dear said i "'You have told me yourself what reward he has to look for. "'All is fair in love, you must remember, "'and if Northmore foments your father's terrors, "'it is not at all because he is afraid of any Italian man, "'but simply because he is infatuated with a charming English woman.' "'She reminded me of his attack upon myself "'on the night of the disembarkation, "'and this I was unable to explain. "'In short, and from one thing to another,' It was agreed between us that I should set out at once for the Fisher Village, Graydon Wester, as it was called, look up all the newspapers I could find, and see for myself if there seemed any basis of fact for these continued alarms. The next morning, at the same hour and place, I was to make my report to Clara. She said no more on that occasion about my departure, nor indeed did she make it a secret that she clung to the thought of my proximity as something helpful and pleasant. "'and for my part I could not have left her "'if she had gone upon her knees to ask it. "'I reached Graydon Wester before ten in the forenoon, "'for in those days I was an excellent pedestrian, "'and the distance, as I think I have said, "'was little over seven miles, "'fine walking all the way upon the springy turf. "'The village is one of the bleakest on that coast, "'which is saying much. "'There is a church in the hollow.' a miserable haven in the rocks where many boats have been lost as they returned from fishing, two or three score of stone houses arranged along the beach, and in two streets, one leading from the harbor and another striking out from it at right angles, and, at the corner of these two, a very dark and cheerless tavern by way of principal hotel. I had dressed myself somewhat more suitably to my station in life, and at once called upon the minister in his little manse beside the graveyard. He knew me, although it was more than nine years since we had met, and when I told him that I had been long upon a walking tour and was behind with the news, readily lent me an armful of newspapers, dating from a month back to the day before. With these I sought the tavern, and, ordering some breakfast, sat down to study the Huddlestone failure. It had been, it appeared, a very flagrant case. Thousands of persons were reduced to poverty, and one in particular had blown out his brains as soon as payment was suspended. It was strange to myself that while I read these details, I continued rather to sympathize with Mr. Huddlestone than with his victims, so complete already was the empire of my love for my wife. A price was naturally set upon the banker's head, and as the case was inexcusable and the public indignation thoroughly aroused, the unusual figure of seven hundred and fifty was offered for his capture. He was reported to have large sums of money in his possession. One day he had been heard of in Spain, the next there was sure intelligence that he was still lurking between Manchester and Liverpool, or along the border of Wales, and the day after? A telegram would announce his arrival in Cuba or Yucatan, but in all this there was no word of an Italian, nor any sign of mystery. In the very last paper, however, there was one item not so clear. The accountants who were charged to verify the failure had, it seemed, come upon the traces of a very large number of thousands, which figured for some time in the transactions of the House of Huddlestone, but which came from nowhere, and disappeared in the same mysterious fashion. It was only once referred to by name, and then under the initials X.X., but it had plainly been floated for the first time into the business at a period of Great Depression some six years ago. The name of a distinguished royal personage had been mentioned by rumor in connection with this sum. The cowardly Desperado, such I remember was the editorial expression, was supposed to have escaped with a large part of this mysterious fund still in his possession. I was still brooding over the fact and trying to torture it into some connection with Mr. Huddlestone's danger when a man entered the tavern and asked for some bread and cheese with a decided foreign accent. Siete Italiano, said I. Si, Signore, was his reply. I said it was unusually far north to find one of his compatriots, at which he shrugged his shoulders and replied that a man would go anywhere to find work. What work he could hope to find at Graden Wester I was totally unable to conceive, and the incident struck so unpleasantly upon my mind that I asked the landlord while he was counting me some change whether he had ever before seen an Italian in the village. He replied he had once seen some Norwegians who had been shipwrecked on the other side of Graydon Ness and rescued by a lifeboat from Caldhaven. No, said I, but an Italian like the man who has just had his bread and cheese. "'What?' cried he. "'Yon black-of-eyes fellow with the teeth. Was he an Italian? Well, yon's the first that ever I saw, and I dare say he's like to be the last.' Even as he was speaking, I raised my eyes, and casting a glance into the street, beheld three men in earnest conversation together, and not thirty yards away. One of them was my recent companion in the tavern parlor. The other two, by their handsome, sallow features and soft hats, should evidently belong to the same race. A crowd of village children stood around them, gesticulating and talking gibberish in imitation. The trio looked singularly foreign in the bleak, dirty street in which they were standing, and the dark grey heaven that overspread them and i confess my incredulity received at that moment a shock from which it never recovered i might reason with myself as i pleased but i could not argue down the effect of what i had seen and i began to share in the italian terror it was already drawing toward the close of the day before i had returned to the newspapers to the manse and got well forward on to the links on my way home I shall never forget that walk. It was very cold and boisterous. The wind sung in the short grass about my feet. Thin rain showers came running on the gusts, and an immense mountain range of clouds began to arise out of the bosom of the sea. It would be hard to imagine a more dismal evening. And whether it was from these external influences, or because my nerves were already affected by what I had heard and seen— "'My thoughts were as gloomy as the weather. "'The upper windows of the pavilion "'commanded a considerable spread of links "'in the direction of and Wester. "'To avoid observation, it was necessary to hug the beach "'until I had gained cover from higher sand-hills "'on the little headland, "'when I might strike across through the hollows "'for the margin of the wood. "'The sun was about setting.' The tide was low, and all the quicksands uncovered, and I was moving along, lost in unpleasant thought, when I was suddenly thunderstruck to perceive the prints of human feet. They ran parallel to my own course, but low down upon the beach instead of along the border of the turf, and when I examined them, I saw at once, by the size and coarseness of the impression, that it was a stranger to me and to those of the pavilion who had recently passed that way. Not only so, but from the recklessness of the course which he had followed, steering near to the most formidable portions of the sand, he was evidently a stranger to the country and to the ill repute of Graydon Beach. Step by step I followed the prince, until a quarter of a mile farther I beheld them die away into the southeastern border of Graydon Flow. There, whoever he was, the miserable man had perished. One or two gulls who had perhaps seen him disappear wheeled over his sepulchre with their usual melancholy piping. The sun had broken through the clouds by a last effort and colored the wide level of quicksands with a dusky purple. I stood for some time gazing at the spot, chilled and disheartened by my own reflections, and with a strong and commanding consciousness of death. I remember wondering how long the tragedy had taken and whether his screams had been audible at the pavilion. And then, making a strong resolution, I was about to tear myself away when a gust fiercer than usual fell upon this quarter of the beach and I saw, now whirling high in the air, now skimming lightly along the surface of the sands, a soft black felt hat, somewhat conical in shape, "'such as I had remarked already on the heads of the Italians. "'I believe, but I am not sure, that I uttered a cry. "'The wind was driving the hat shoreward, "'and I ran around the border of the floe "'to be ready against its arrival. "'The gust fell, dropping the hat for a while upon the quicksand, "'and then, once more freshening, "'landed it a few yards from where I stood. "'I seized it with the interest you may imagine.' It had seen some service. Indeed, it was rustier than either of those I had seen that day upon the street. The lining was red, stamped with the name of the Maker, which I have forgotten, and that of the place of manufacturer, Venedig. This, it is not yet forgotten, was the name given by the Austrians to the beautiful city of Venice, then and for long after a part of their dominions. The shock was complete. I saw imaginary Italians upon every side, and for the first, and I may say for the last time in my experience, became overpowered by what is called a panic terror. I knew nothing, that is to be afraid of, and yet I admit that I was heartily afraid, and it was with sensible reluctance that I returned to my exposed and solitary camp in the sea wood. There I ate some cold porridge, which had been left over from the night before, for I was disinclined to make a fire, and, feeling strengthened and reassured, dismissed all these fanciful terrors from my mind and lay down to sleep with composure. How long I may have slept is impossible for me to guess, but I was awakened at last by a sudden blinding flash of light into my face. It woke me like a blow. In an instant I was upon my knees. The light had gone as suddenly as it came. The darkness was intense, and as it was blowing great guns from the sea and pouring with rain, the noises of the storm effectually concealed all others. It was, I dare say, half a minute before I regained my self-possession. But for two circumstances I should have thought I had been awakened by some new and vivid form of nightmare. First, the flap of my tent, which I had shut carefully when I retired, was now unfastened. And second, I could still perceive with a sharpness that excluded any theory of hallucination the smell of hot metal and burning oil. The conclusion was obvious. I had been awakened by someone flashing a bull's eye lantern in my face. It had been but a flash and away. He had seen my face and then gone. I asked myself the object of so strange a proceeding, and the answer came pat. The man, whoever he was, had thought to recognize me, and he had not. There was another question unresolved, and to this, I may say, I feared to give an answer. If he had recognized me, what would he have done? My fears were immediately diverted from myself, for I saw that I had been visited in a mistake, and I became persuaded that some dreadful danger threatened the pavilion. It required some nerve to issue forth and into the black and intricate thicket, which surrounded and overhung the den, but I groped my way to the links, drenched with rain, beaten upon and deafened by the gusts, and fearing at every step to lay my hand upon some lurking adversary. The darkness was so complete that I might have been surrounded by an army, and yet none the wiser, and the uproar of the gale so loud that my hearing was as useless as my sight. For the rest of that night, which seemed interminably long, I patrolled the vicinity of the pavilion without seeing a living creature or hearing any noise but the concert of the wind, the sea, and the rain. A light in the upper story filtered through a cranny of the shutter, and kept me company till the approach of dawn. Five. With the first peep of day, I retired from the open to my old lair among the sand-hills, there to await the coming of my wife. The morning was gray, wild, and melancholy. The wind moderated before sunrise, and then went about, and blew in puffs from the shore. The sea began to go down, but the rain still fell without mercy. Over all the wilderness of links, there was not a creature to be seen, yet I felt sure the neighborhood was alive with skulking foes. The light that had been so suddenly and surprisingly flashed upon my face as I lay sleeping, and the hat that had been blown ashore by the wind over from Graydon Flo were two speaking signals of the peril that environed Clara and the party in the pavilion. It was perhaps half-past seven, or nearer eight, before I saw the door open and that dear figure come toward me in the rain. "'I was waiting for her on the beach "'before she had crossed the sand-hills. "'I have had such trouble to come,' she cried. "'They did not wish me to go walking in the rain. "'Clara,' I said, "'you are not frightened?' "'No,' said she, "'with a simplicity that filled my heart with confidence, "'for my wife was the bravest "'as well as the best of women. "'In my experience, "'I have not found the two always go together, "'but with her they did.' and she combined the extreme of fortitude with the most endearing and beautiful virtues. I told her what had happened, and though her cheek grew visibly paler, she retained perfect control over her senses. "'You see, now that I am safe,' said I in conclusion, "'they do not mean to harm me, for had they chosen, I was a dead man last night.' She laid her hand upon my arm. "'And I had no presentiment,' she cried. Her accent thrilled me with delight. I put my arm about her and strained her to my side, and before either of us was aware her hands were on my shoulders and my lips upon her mouth. Yet up to that moment no word of love had passed between us. To this day I remember the touch of her cheek— which was wet and cold with the rain, and many a time since, when she has been washing her face, I have kissed it again for the sake of that morning on the beach. Now that she is taken from me, and I finish my pilgrimage alone, I recall our old loving kindnesses and the deep honesty and affection which united us, and my present loss seems but a trifling comparison. We may have thus stood for some seconds." for time passes quickly with lovers, before we were startled by a peal of laughter close at hand. It was not natural, Mirth, but seemed to be affected in order to conceal an angrier feeling. We both turned, though I still kept my left arm about Clara's waist, nor did she seek to withdraw herself, and there, a few paces off from the beach, stood Northmore, his head lowered, his hands behind his back, his nostrils white with passion. "'Ah, Cassilis," he said as I disclosed my face. "'That same,' said I, for I was not at all put about. "'And so, Miss Huddlestone,' he continued slowly but savagely, "'this is how you keep your faith to your father and to me. "'This is the value you set upon your father's life.' and you are so infatuated with this young gentleman that you must brave ruin and decency and common human caution. Miss Huddlestone, I was beginning to interrupt him when he in his turn cut in brutally. You hold your tongue, said he. I am speaking to that girl. That girl, as you call her, is my wife, said I. "'and my wife only leaned a little nearer "'so that I knew she had affirmed my words. "'Your what?' he cried. "'You lie!' "'Northmore,' I said, "'we all know you have a bad temper, "'and I am the last man to be irritated by words. "'For all that, I propose you speak lower, "'for I am convinced we are not alone.' "'He looked round him, "'and it was plain my remark "'had in some degree sobered his passion. "'What do you mean?' he asked. I only said one word. Italians. He swore a round oath, and looked at us from one to the other. "'Mr. Casillas knows all that I know,' said my wife. "'What I want to know,' he broke out, "'is where the devil Mr. Casillas comes from, and what the devil Mr. Casillas is doing here. You say you are married.' "'That I do not believe. "'If you were, Graydon Flo would soon divorce you. for minutes and a half, Cassilis, "'I keep my private cemetery for my friends.' "'It took somewhat longer,' said I, "'for that Italian.' "'He looked at me for a moment, half daunted, "'and then almost civilly asked me to tell my story. "'You have too much the advantage of me, Cassilis, he added. I complied, of course, and he listened with several ejaculations while I told him how I had come to Graydon, that it was I whom he had tried to murder on the night of landing, and what I had subsequently seen and heard of the Italians. "'Well,' said he, when I had done, "'it is here at last, there is no mistake about that. And what, may I ask, do you propose to do?' "'I propose to stay with you and lend you a hand,' said I." "'You are a brave man,' he returned, with a peculiar intonation. "'I am not afraid,' said I. "'And so,' he continued, "'am I to understand that you two are married, "'and you stand up to it before my face, Miss Huddlestone?' "'We are not yet married,' said Clara, "'but we shall be as soon as we can.' "'Bravo!' cried Northmore, "'and the bargain?' "'Damn it, you're not a fool, young woman. I may call a spade a spade with you. How about the bargain? You know as well as I do what your father's life depends upon. I have only to put my hands under my coat tails and walk away, and his throat would be cut before the evening.' "'Yes, Mr. Northmore.' Returned Clara with great spirit, but that is what you will never do. You made a bargain that was unworthy of a gentleman, but you are a gentleman for all that, and you will never desert a man whom you have begun to help. Ha <laughs> ha! Said he, "You think I will give my yacht for nothing? You think I will risk my life and liberty for love of the old gentleman, and then I suppose be best man at the wedding to wind up?" Well, he added with an odd smile. Perhaps you are not altogether wrong. But ask Cassilis here. He knows me. Am I a man to trust? Am I safe and scrupulous? Am I kind? I know you talk a great deal, and sometimes I think very foolishly, replied Clara, but I know you are a gentleman, and I am not the least afraid. He looked at her with a peculiar approval and admiration. Then, turning to me, "'Do you think I would give her up without a struggle, Frank?' said he. "'I tell you plainly, look out. "'The next time we come to blows—' "'We'll make the third, I interrupted, smiling. "'Aye, true, so it will,' he said. "'I had forgotten. "'Well, the third time's lucky.' "'The third time, you mean, you will have the crew of the Red Earl to help?' I said. "'Do you hear him?' "'he asked, turning to my wife. "'I hear two men speaking like cowards,' said she, "'and I should despise myself either to think or speak like that. "'And neither of you believe one word that you are saying, "'which makes it the more wicked and silly.' "'She's a trump,' cried Northmore. "'But she's not yet, Mrs. Kacilis. "'I say no more. "'The present is not for me.' "'Then my wife surprised me. "'I leave you here,' she said suddenly. "'My father has been too long alone. "'But remember this, you are to be friends, "'for you are both good friends to me.' "'She has since told me her reason for this step. "'As long as she remained, "'she declares that we two would have continued to quarrel. "'And I suppose that she was right, "'for when she was gone we fell at once "'into a sort of confidentiality.' Northmore stared after her as she went away over the sand-hill. "'She is the only woman in the world,' he exclaimed with an oath. "'Look at her action!' "'I, for my part, leaped at this opportunity for a little further light. "'See here, Northmore, said I. "'We are all in a tight place, are we not?' "'I believe you, my boy,' he answered, looking me in the eyes and with great emphasis. "'We have all hell upon us, that's the truth.' You may believe me or not, but I'm afraid of my life. Tell me one thing, said I. What are they after, these Italians? What do they want with Mr. Huddlestone? Don't you know? he cried. The black old scamp had Carbonari funds on a deposit. Two hundred and eighty thousand. And of course he gambled it away on stocks. There was to have been a revolution in the Tridentio or Parma, but the revolution is off. "'and the whole wasp's nest is after Huddlestone. "'We shall all be lucky if we can save our skins.' "'The Carbonari!' I exclaimed. "'God help him indeed!' "'Amen!' said Northmore. "'And now look here. "'I have said that we are in a fix, "'and frankly I shall be glad of your help. "'If I can't save Huddlestone, "'I want at least to save the girl. "'Come and stay in the pavilion, "'and there's my hand on it.' I shall act as your friend until the old man is either clear or dead. But, he added, once that is settled, you become my rival once again, and I warn you, mind yourself. Done, said I, and we shook hands. And now let us go directly to the fort, said Northmore, and he began to lead the way through the rain. 6. We were admitted to the pavilion by Clara, and I was surprised by the completeness and security of the defenses. A barricade of great strength, and yet easy to displace, supported the door against any violence from without, and the shutters of the dining-room into which I was led directly, and which was feebly illuminated by a lamp, were even more elaborately fortified. The panels were strengthened by bars and crossbars, and these in their turn were kept in position by a system of braces and struts, some abutting on the floor, some on the roof, and others, in fine, against the opposite wall of the apartment. It was at once a solid and well-designed piece of carpentry, and I did not seek to conceal my admiration. "'I am the engineer,' said Northmore. "'You remember the planks in the garden? Behold them!' "'I did not know you had so many talents,' said I. "'Are you armed?' he continued, pointing to an array of guns and pistols, all in admirable order, which stood in line against the wall or were displayed upon the sideboard. "'Thank you,' I returned. "'I have gone armed since our last encounter. "'But to tell you the truth, I have had nothing to eat since early yesterday morning. "'Northmore produced some cold meat, to which I eagerly set myself,' and a bottle of good burgundy, by which, wet as I was, I did not scruple to profit. I have always been an extreme-temperance man on principle, but it is useless to push principle to excess, and on this occasion I believe that I finished three-quarters of the bottle. As I ate, I still continued to admire the preparations for defense. "'We could stand a siege,' I said at length. "'Yes,' drawled Northmore. "'A very little one, perhaps. "'It is not so much the strength of the pavilion I missed out. "'It is the double danger that kills me. "'If we get to shooting, wild as the country is, "'someone is sure to hear it. "'And then, why, it's the same thing, "'only different, as they say, "'caged by law or killed by Carbonari. "'There's the choice. "'It's a devilish bad thing to have the law against you in this world, "'and so I tell the old gentleman upstairs.' "'He is quite of my way of thinking.' "'Speaking of that,' said I, "'what kind of person is he?' "'Oh, he,' cried the other, "'he's a rancid fellow as far as he goes. "'I should like to have his neck run tomorrow "'by all the devils in Italy. "'I am not in this affair for him. "'You take me? "'I made a bargain for Missy's hand, "'and I mean to have it, too.' "'That, by the way,' said I, "'I understand.' "'But how will Mr. Huddlestone take my intrusion?' "'Leave that to Clara,' returned Northmore. "'I could have struck him in the face for his coarse familiarity. "'But I respected the truce. "'As I am bound to say did Northmore, "'and so long as the danger continued not a cloud rose in our relation. "'I bear him this testimony with the most unfeigned satisfaction.' Nor am I without pride when I look back upon my own behavior, for surely no two men were ever left in a position so invidious and irritating. As soon as I had done eating, we proceeded to inspect the lower floor. Window by window we tried the different supports, now and then making an inconsiderable change, and the strokes of the hammer sounded with startling loudness through the house. I proposed, I remember, to make loopholes, but he told me they were already made in the windows of the upper story. It was an anxious business, this inspection, and left me downhearted. There were two doors and five windows to protect, and counting Clara only four of us to defend them against an unknown number of foes. I communicated my doubts to Northmore, who assured me with unmoved composure that he entirely shared them. Before morning... "'said he. "'We shall all be butchered and buried in grade and flow. "'For me that is written.' "'I could not help shuddering at the mention of the quicksand, "'but reminded Northmore that our enemies had spared me in the wood. "'Do not flatter yourself,' said he. "'Then you were not in the same boat with the old gentleman. "'Now you are. "'It's the flow for all of us. "'Mark my words.' "'I trembled for Clara.' and just then her dear voice was heard calling us to come upstairs northmour showed me the way and when he had reached the landing knocked at the door of what used to be called my uncle's bedroom as the founder of the pavilion had designed it especially for himself come in Northmore," come in dear mr cassilis said a voice from within pushing open the door northmour admitted me before him into the apartment As I came in I could see the daughter slipping out by the side door into the study, which had been prepared as her bedroom. In the bed, which was drawn back against the wall, instead of standing as I had seen it boldly across the window, sat Bernard Huddlestone, the defaulting banker. Little as I had seen of him by the shifting light of the lantern on the links, I had no difficulty in recognizing him for the same. He had a long and sallow countenance, surrounded by a long red beard and side whiskers. His broken nose and high cheekbones gave him somewhat the air of Kalmuk, and his light eyes shone with the excitement of a high fever. He wore a skullcap of black silk, a huge Bible lay open before him on the bed, with a pair of gold spectacles in the place, and a pile of other books lay on the stand by his side. The green curtains lent a cadaverous shade to his cheek, and as he sat propped on pillows, his great stature was painfully hunched, and his head protruded until it overhung his knees. I believe if he had not died otherwise, he must have fallen a victim to the consumption in the course of but a very few weeks. He held out to me a hand, long, thin, and disagreeably hairy. Come in, come in, mister said he, another protector. Always welcome as a friend of my daughter's, Mr. Cassilis, How they have rallied about me, my daughter's friends. May God in heaven bless and reward them for it. I gave him my hand, of course, because I could not help it, but the sympathy I had been prepared to feel for Clara's father was immediately soured by his appearance and the wheedling, unreal tones in which he spoke. Cassilis is a good man,' said Northmore, "'worth ten. "'So I hear,' cried Mr. Huddlestone eagerly. "'So my girl tells me. Ah, Mr. Cassilis, my sin has found me out, you see. I am very low, very low, but I hope equally penitent. We must all come to the throne of grace at last, Mr. Kasilis.' "'For my part I come late, but with unfeigned humility I trust.' "'Fiddle-dee-dee,' said Northmore roughly. "'No, no, dear Northmore,' cried the banker, "'you must not say that. You must not try to shake me. You forget, my dear good boy, you forget I may be called this very night before my maker.' His excitement was pitiful to behold and I felt myself grow indignant with Northmore whose infidel opinions I well knew and heartily despised as he continued to taunt the poor sinner out of his humour of repentance "poo my dear huddlestone" said he "you do yourself injustice you are a man of the world inside and out and were up to all kinds of mischief before i was born" "'Your conscience is tanned like South American leather, "'only you forgot to tan your liver, "'and that, if you will believe me, "'is the seat of the annoyance.' "'Rogue, rogue, bad boy,' said Mr. Huddlestone, "'shaking his finger. "'I'm no precision, if you come to that. "'I always hated a precision, "'but I never lost hold of something better through it all. "'I have been a bad boy, Mr. Cassilis. "'I do not seek to deny that.' "'But it was after my wife's death. "'And, you know, with a widower it's a different thing. "'Sinful, I won't say no. "'But there is a gradation, we shall hope. "'And talking of that, hark!' "'He broke out suddenly. "'His hands raised, his fingers spread, "'his face racked with interest and terror. "'Ah! Only the rain, bless God!' "'He added after a pause, and with indescribable relief.' For some seconds he lay back among the pillows like a man near to fainting. Then he gathered himself together, and in somewhat tremulous tones began once more to thank me for the share I was prepared to take in his defense. "'One question, sir,' said I, when he had paused. "'Is it true that you have money with you?' He seemed annoyed by the question, but admitted with reluctance that he had a little. Well. "'I continued. "'It is their money they are after, is it not? "'Why not give it up to them?' "'Ah!' replied he, shaking his head. "'I have tried that already, Mr. Casilis, "'and alas, that it should be so. "'But it is blood they want.' Huddlestone, that's a little less than fair,' said Northmore. "'You should mention that what you offered them "'was upward of two hundred thousand short. "'The deficit is worth a reference.' It is for what they call a cool sum, Frank. Then, you see, the fellows reason in their clear Italian way, and it seems to them, as indeed it seems to me, that they may just as well have both while they're about it, money and blood together by George, and no more trouble for the extra pleasure. Is it in the pavilion? I asked. It is, and I wish it were in the bottom of the sea instead, said Northmore. And then, suddenly— what are you making faces at me for? he cried to Mr. Huddlestone, on whom I had unconsciously turned my back. Do you think Cassilis would sell you? Mr. Huddlestone protested that nothing had been further from his mind. It is a good thing, retorted Northmour in his ugliest manner. You might end by wearying us. What were you going to say? he added, turning to me. I was going to propose an occupation for the afternoon said I. Let us carry that money out, piece by piece, and lay it down before the pavilion door. If the carbonari come, why, it's theirs, at any rate. No, no, cried Mr. Huddlestone. It does not. It cannot belong to them. It should be distributed pro rata among all my creditors. (laughs) Come now, Huddlestone, said Northmore. None of that. Well, but my daughter moaned the wretched man. "'Your daughter will do well enough. "'Here are two suitors, Cassilis and I, "'neither of us beggars, "'between whom she has to choose. "'And as for yourself, "'to make an end of arguments, "'you have no right to a farthing, "'and unless I'm much mistaken, "'you are going to die.' It was certainly very cruelly said, but Mr. Huddlestone was a man who attracted little sympathy, and although I saw him wince and shudder, I mentally endorsed the rebuke. Nay, I added a contribution of my own. "'Northmore and I,' said I, "'are willing enough to help you to save your life, "'but not to escape with stolen property.' He struggled for a while with himself, as though he were on the point of giving way to anger— but prudence had the best of the controversy. "'My dear boys,' said he, "'do with me or my money what you will. I leave all in your hands. Let me compose myself.' And so we left him, gladly enough, I am sure. The last that I saw, he had once more taken up his great Bible, and with tremulous hands was adjusting his spectacles to read.